What's up, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Professional Athlete Podcast. We are joined this week by Dr. Todd Cashdan. Now, if you don't know about Dr. Cashdad, he is uh, quite the personality. He's currently a professor of psychology at George Mason University, and he is the founder of their well-being lab. They do some really interesting work around well-being, curiosity. They also have a focus on sports psychology, and we have a wide-ranging conversation today covering everything from Ted Lasso to Bob Knight to coaching your kids to creating resilience in athletes, all the way to Abraham Lincoln. Fantastic conversation, and, and quite honestly, probably one of my favorite ones that I've had to date. We discussed his most recent book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Fantastic read, and I think very relevant for a lot of what's going on today. So this was a lot of fun. Uh, Dr. Cashdan was great. And on that note, someone finally said, hey, Ken, you promised more episodes. What's going on? Well, folks... I'm busy. And part of the pandemic (laughs) starting to come to an end means I'm traveling more for work and it's just getting a little bit tougher to get these things out. So we've got a ton of great episodes coming to you down the pike. But someone finally said, you know what? Why are you not on Patreon? It makes no sense. You need help, clearly. (laughs) So why don't you let people contribute? So I finally took their advice. I created a Patreon account. And if you would like to contribute to the show, We are dedicated to growing this thing. I have a big vision for it, but ultimately I need some more people to help me execute that. So if you would like to contribute to the show, go to the show notes. There's a link to our new Patreon, and I'm going to start building that out here over the coming weeks. But man, we'd, we'd greatly appreciate it if you're enjoying it. All right. Without further ado, folks, I'll stop the panhandling and let's welcome Dr. Todd Cashdan to the show. Here we go. We're going up and down, over and over, over and over, it's the same old thing, up and down, over and under, under the radar, over everything, we're Awesome. Well, welcome, Dr. Cashdan. Excited to talk with you today. Yeah, same here. Good to be here. So uh, I was just telling you a little bit before we started, um, I, had, I had the pleasure of reading your, your most recent book, uh, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And what I was telling you was like, very interesting, number one, but number two, like very sorely needed in today's environment. Yeah, I don't think anybody's walking around and saying we have so much moral courage, so much intellectual courage right now for people standing up to really absurd ideas that uh, we don't need any guidebooks whatsoever. And we have let's put people into coal mines and start fly fishing because we got enough characters out there who are whistleblowers and breaking things down. Well, and and even if uh, like I would say a lot of people would would probably feel that there's there's no shortage of like quote unquote rebels at the moment. I think the question is like, are those rebels doing things effectively in a way that's actually moving us forward? Um, and that's one of the things that I found so enjoyable about this book. Like, it really is kind of almost a guidebook. It's you know, in, in my uh, opinion, it felt like, hey, look, if you're passionate, if you see an area that is like ripe for change you know, there's a right way to go about this. Like there's a way to make that change happen. That's going to be hopefully effective, long lasting, um, and isn't going to be so disruptive that it's going to completely throw the status quo out the window and throw us into anarchy. 
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this I'm not. Ta- we're not talking about rebels. We're not talking about rebellions. We're talking about mm. how do we be catalyze a better future that's more utopian than what we have right now. And so, yeah. w- as you were describing, that it seems as if we have a lot of rebels. I would say we have a lot of people that are signaling to a lot of other people mm. that we are good tribe members and we are saying the right thing and doing the right thing. We don't even care about the thing. We're just trying to solidify our group membership. That's what I see when I see a lot of people ah. who are talking, speaking, taking up a lot of airtime. So this this idea of like virtue signal uh, signaling. Yeah, with yeah. So avoiding that term because it's been over overused is <laughs> what I want to help people do is also recognize: yeah. Are you doing something that is central to cherish interests of what you care about, or is it that you don't even recognize that you have? non-consciously absorb the interests of a faction that you are part of or you're aspiring to be part of yeah and that like that that's incumbent upon the individual to do a lot of reflection a lot of a lot of deep deep digging yeah i mean i also i also think there's there's a lot of responsibility to go around i mean what i think about the media is it'd be really nice as opposed to doing the story of the day that shows what's ridiculous about people who are progressive, what's ridiculous about people that are conservative is, hey, this portfolio of beliefs, why do people hold this entire portfolio as opposed to thinking a la carte and saying, I like mm. this one, not that one, this one I could care less about. You know, there's there are meta comments that are missing in the narrative because they don't sell newspapers and they don't sell, you know, screen shares for for a news station but it, it's incumbent on on authors and people that are studying this to say it doesn't make sense that you would have a 90 percent agreement with anybody in your political party i mean just it's just the nature of being a, a, a very unique individual in society so that's something that's always blown my mind and i you know there's plenty of places to go for political talk and so this show is often not one of them but i've always felt it makes no sense to me that, you know, to only have two political parties and to align so strictly to one as if that party's uh, encompasses like all of your opinions and beliefs on like such a diverse, wide array of topics. Um, you know, and, and for that reason, I, I, I've always just found like, like people, it seems to just blindly grab on to the views of a fraction or a faction rather. Um, and just kind of take that as like, you know what? Yeah, I'm just going to cheer for this team, kind of no matter what. And that to me has just always made made no sense. Yeah. So so pulling it away from politics, I would say this is that when I teach my college classes, I tell my students, if you agree with everything that I say over the course of a single class, that tells me you're not paying attention. It tells me ah. you're not synthesizing ideas. And if a leader of an organization has a bunch of people that are agreeing with them over the course of an entire 90-minute meeting, I would say something is wrong in your culture where people aren't speaking up or they're not spending enough time reflecting and incubating about their own opinions, and that's problematic. So the way I view it is just a very simple, non-scientifically proven mantra is I look for 80% approval. And once it's higher than 80%, I say, I will say something culturally is something's wrong here is that either we're not taking enough time to kind of sit with these ideas or you're trying to appease me or there's some level of self-censorship that I want to obliterate a little bit more in this in this system so that more ideas and more voices come out. And I would like other people to consider that mantra 
as opposed to the sort of the dopamine hit you get when people agree with you, like you, and tell you that you're smart so much. So, you know, I've got a bunch of questions for you, but maybe we can go down this road a little bit. So, so why is it so important that someone or some percentage of the group is like dissenting from like the common held consensus? Yeah, there's this neglected researcher, Charlene Nemeth, who's about to retire or is retired. This is a, my book to some degree is an ode to other scientists. Hmm. And she has this real nice body of work of showing there's three real benefits of having someone in the mix who disagrees with you. And they're disagreeing hmm. with you, as you know, Ken, as you said, it's because of principled reasons not to showcase that they're intelligent, smart, or they're, you know, they're, they're one-upping you. Sure. So one of them is that even if the dissenter is completely off base, like freaking nonsense that they're spouting, they introduce the idea, they, they, they break the third wall and say, oh, other ideas are possible to inject, other decisions are possible that we can consider before deciding what the solution is going to be. And so, for example, like if you and I were talking about how do we create the next, the next generation of amazing Olympic athletes, and you mm. say, hey, is there something, everyone always talks about high altitude running, but what about like in space? What about like bringing them into like, into the interstellar space station? I mean, just the, the best, the best cream of the crop, could that actually ramp them up? No right. one's thought about this idea, but just, just the notion of, if we're talking about gravity affecting your physical performance, then as soon as you bring that, even though if biologically, it actually makes your, your knees and your joints weaker, which we know that, and you're yeah. wrong. Now that you said that, it's like, yeah, what about like dropping people off in the middle of the ocean? Like, what about people, you know, what about bringing people into, into planes? And all of a sudden it opens up this window of divergent yeah. thinking, even if you're stupid with your idea. No, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's, it's very easy to kind of operate within the confines of, you know, again, say the status quo, but like, you know, what is, um, commonly practiced or accepted, and I could see how it's like, hey, if you kind of blow the top off that, it's like all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait, all right, that may have been in its own right, like an idea that is like crazy or not worth pursuing. But like, wow, it's like maybe there's something else in the middle there uh, that could push the boundaries of what we're currently doing that we haven't explored yet. Yeah. So one thing that I do with with a lot of my work is when everyone gets really excited about a topic, I always think of what well, probably doesn't work all the time. So when mindfulness was the mm. big hit in psychology and everybody's everybody's still writing mindfulness for poker and mindfulness for fine dining. And I was, I was like, if mindfulness was so good for the human psyche, why wouldn't we be having the state more often with 1.5 million years of evolution? So we, hmm. we ended up, Robert Biswas Diener and I wrote, um, you know, a long book chapter about the benefits of mindlessness. And you find that it's actually very beneficial. And there's this really cool study showing that when people that are overweight, which I don't know if that's a microaggression in 2022, but they're overweight <laughs> yeah. and they are. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll sound terrible two years from now, I guarantee yeah, you, no matter what. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's appropriate today. Exactly. Yeah. And so they are paired up with either a peer or someone that's much older, like o over 75 years of age. And these, and when they're with a the peer, um, those peers tend to hold back their thoughts. So what they think about, they write about, are very, are very contradict indicative with what they actually say to the person. They're not telling them the truth. So the conversation hmm. is about weight and exercise. Now, the older adults who are over 75, they're like truth tellers. They're just like, listen, kid, you got to exercise. You're going to have heart mm. attacks. You're going to have strokes. Um, you're not going to have a romantic partner. Um, just look at yourself. Now, here's what's interesting. 
it doesn't feel good to have that conversation with this, the truth teller, the straight, right. the straight speaker. But when they're asked, hey, who do you want to spend time with again? Who gave you wisdom? Like who was the most valuable person that you'd want in your social circle? Invariably, hmm. those overweight students prefer the person that was the straight talking older adult and not their peer. And there's something to be said about there's it goes back to the courage deficit is we need people that are truth tellers. But let's just focus on how to be a good messenger so that you get a receptive audience. Mm. It's so interesting because that, that brings to mind so many examples just in my own life of, you know, some of like, you know, if we, if we move this to athletics just a little bit, like when I think about some of the coaches that impacted my life, uh, certainly some of the most memorable ones were probably falling in that truth telling camp. And I think, you know, one, one of the people, and uh, if Tom Royce is listening, I mean, he's one of my favorite people on the planet, my JV basketball coach <laughs> in high school. I mean, opposing teams' parents would be, I mean, I, sometimes they would come up to us after the game and be like, I'm so sorry, like you poor kids, because he was so loud right? and he was so demanding. What they didn't realize is he was also the most positive, supportive, but he demanded your very best every time. And from the outside looking in, you're like, whew, I do not want to play for that guy. But if you played for him, I almost think to a man, every kid was like, I will run through a wall for this guy. This is what they say about Bob Knight. You know, you've got, um, I don't know what the percentage is, but I, I read a lot of narratives about Bob Knight at Indiana University as the best. He was the guy, you know, if people don't know, that was oh, man. throwing metal chairs across across the court just to, for no reason, just because he was pissed off at his own player. And right. he got in a lot of trouble because I think, he, I think he physically slapped or pushed one of his own players. Yeah, there's a little choke involved. Yeah, yeah. he was but, but <laughs> as, controversial. But Ken, as you're saying, the large majority of narratives that I've read are ones that like, listen, he was physically intimidating. He was emotionally intimidating, but he mm. made me a better human being. And he made me a better parent, a better friend, a better athlete that happened there. And there's something sociologically where we have closed off that window of someone that's a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more emotionally intense, a little bit more in your face. And I would argue that, we have a we have a, a generation that is psychologically weaker than prior generations because we do not have these tests of fortitude of being around an adult who really does care about you, but their right. for lack of a better word, love language is expressions of I'm gonna point out all your weaknesses, I'm gonna make you stronger, and you're gonna hate me during the process. That sounds good, but most parents and caregivers would say, now that I'm looking at it, I want to pull them out and bring them in with a positive coach. And I would argue is that there's something about yeah. the 40, especially if you have peers that are going through it with you. So one-on-one, -on -one, that's a challenging endeavor. But if you're sort of going through this, this uh, gauntlet of pain with other people, there's also the social bonding that is so much stronger as a team and just as having friends and allies that cannot be replicated by a purely positive Ted Lasso kind of coach. Well, and it's funny, two things there that come to mind. Number one, um, you know, I mean, if anyone wants to see what this looks like, I feel like the movie Miracle and Remember the Titans do an incredible job of demonstrating like how a tough, hard-nosed, unrelenting coach, uh, you know, if nothing else, can like bring the team together because they're going through that shared experience. And I think anyone who's like lived through that can probably relate. But you know, so I have three kids. Um, my daughter's seven, my son's four, and we, my youngest son is two and a half. And so it's it's been one of like 
the greatest pleasures uh, of, of my role as a father, being able to coach them. And as an example, so my daughter's seven, she plays on a team seven, seven through nine. They're at that age where they're starting to really kind of pick it up. And the nine-year-olds, I mean, they're sharp. They're, they're fully functional people. Like, and I've even like noticed in the way that I communicate with them, I'm like, Ooh, like, am I, you know, I know how I want to coach them. I'm like, but am I, am I creating a situation where I'm going to have a mom come and talk to me after practice? Cause I'm being too hard on their kid. Um, there's so many things that like is running in the back of my mind about how I'm coaching them. And it's influenced by like what I'm kind of just seeing in like, kind of like the social tenor right now. It's like, Hey, it's like, you know, you can only give such strict feedback. Uh, you know, you have to, you have to interact with like women in a specific way. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. And so I've, I've kind of been wrestling with like, well, am I just thinking about this because they are very young and they are, um, and like, how am I going to handle this when they do get a little older and they really need real coaching and feedback? Like, how am I going to approach that? Yes. Yeah, so I have a little bit older. I've got twin 15 year olds to play travel soccer and high school soccer and volleyball okay. and a nine year old. So I've gone through, they've gone through several coaches. I've witnessed this. There's, there's a few interesting elements of this. And there's so many angles about kind of the parent over-involvement in sports. And it also mimics in the school place as well. The amount of parents that call the school because their kid got a C or they, you know, they got, right. they got penalized for missing the assignment. But we compare our insides to other people's outsides. And where that comes into play is we are perseverating about thin slices of behavior that we're seeing in coaches and teachers and schools. And what we're not attentive to because we don't have access to is what's happening hmm. behind the scenes when we're not there. And we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't be at the schools and we shouldn't be at the playing fields during practice. And what you see in the games is, is the reflection of dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of hours that are hiding behind the scenes. And so when people freak out of like, why are you yelling at my kid? They don't know that their relationship with your kid might be very diametrical to your relationship with your kid as it should right. be. You've outsourced. And so I've had my kids over the years oscillate between saying, I don't like this coach and I can't work with them. They're too intense. And then later, as they get older, saying that was the best, as you were saying, Ken, that was the best mm. coach I had. Now my coach, I don't even trust their comments because they're so positive all the time. And they never mention my weaknesses. And I can do a laundry list of all the things I have to work on. I wish I had that guy again in the past. And so thinking about these retrospectives of athletes can help mm. us inform how we view Oh, how we view great. these coaches of younger younger kids in today's society. No, I love that. Well, and one of the things too, you know, and, and again, um, yeah, I don't know how much you know about my background, but I, I played football in college. Um, and so I, I keep kind of trying to remind myself, it's like, you know, I'm not doing them any favors by either not correcting them or not providing them like the discipline and the structure needed to actually like develop. Right. Because to your point, like my role in that situation is like, I'm the coach, like I'm there. It's been outsourced to me for like that hour to help get them better at softball. Right. And, and, and have fun and learn all the, you know, all the great things that sports delivers. Um, and so I kind of remind myself, I'm like, well, don't shortchange the kids either. Right. Like don't um, go so soft on them. Like they're, they, you know, they're a lot stronger than you think. And at some point, like the world is not going to be so kind to them. So it's almost like you're cutting your legs out from underneath them. If you don't like give them exposure in small doses 
to what it looks like to deal with, an, you know, to some extent, adversity. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's kind of like what's been going yeah, through my head. There's a, there's a quote that I stole from George W. Bush in the book, which is the bigotry of low expectations. And, hmm. he, and he talked about it from a racial dynamics, but I think we should consider this everywhere. And there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of science to show, is to show that when you have schools that are predominantly white and you have minority students that are in there racially, yeah. is that one of the ways where you could you increase um, the, the performance level of minority students is not to give them extra, extra time on test, extra, ex, you know, less homework. It's basically is that when you give them feedback on a paper, they experimentally test this and they... Some people, they said, listen, great job. Other people, they got feedback that said, listen, I like the way that you're writing. If you did this, this, and this, that would really bring out your potential. So you're pointing mm. out the And those kids that got the constructive critical feedback, they performed better and they were more likely to do extra credit assignments than the people that got positive feedback. So this is a very interesting, very interesting commentary on society with data which is that when we use kid gloves and decide is, and we decide um, prematurely that you are weak, vulnerable because of your demographics, because of your life history, because of what you look like, and that could be physically and that could be kind of, you know, you know uh, or just like your, how you walk yeah. through the world. If we assume weakness and treat them with weakness, we are actually limiting their potential. But there's another end of that, which kind of your, your thought remind me of, Hmm. Is that one of the things that makes a great coach is that you start to understand the variability in the students or the athletes that you're working with to know that what are, how can I resource you? What are your needs and how can right. I match those? And those things might be so subtle that an observer cannot pick up that you gave them a hug. You, you know, you rubbed the top of their head when they came off the field, you whispered something in the ear and what you whispered yeah. to one kid might be listen. You're a freaking machine. Like, go kill those kids that are on the other side. Or you might be whispering to the kid, listen, you, your compassion and your love for your team and your players is what makes you amazing. Don't let anybody change you. And so what you whisper to every kid's mm. ears, in their ears, nobody gets access to that. And when you right. and what coaches might not even be aware that they are completely personalizing everything that they're doing to the players. And that's what makes an exceptional coach. Like, like the higher level element of the coaches, you might be, you know, you might be on a seven on a zero to 10 point scale of aggressiveness, but that's on average. What it doesn't say is you vary between extreme compassion and extreme intensity, depending right. on the player. So that, that just reminded me, um, gosh, I wish I could remember his book. Um, it's, it's Pete Carroll's book and this is maybe like six, seven years old, but one of the things that stood out for me from that book was he talked about how one of the, like the biggest epiphanies that he had was when he realized that like each player learned differently and that each player needed to be communicated to differently to like maximize that player's potential, right? And like, if you're focused on like, how do I get the most out of this player so they can contribute to the team? I need to address their needs uniquely. And this is a little anecdotal, but one, one story that he told was he had a guy at USC, absolute stud. He was a fullback. Um, and he had just learned that like this guy does not respond well to yelling. Not that he shuts down, but he's like, he doesn't have to do that. You could communicate 
what he needs to do to him in a calm way, he'll he'll retain it and then he'll go and execute. And he had this one moment where he he missed an assignment, the fullback ran off the field, and Pete Carroll starts screaming at him. And the fullback looked at him, he was like, Why are you yelling at me? Pete Carroll's kind of like, What? He's like, just well, just tell me what I did and I'll I'll do it different next time. He's like, Oh, yeah. He's like, Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Like you missed your so it was just this really cool yeah. kind of story at the highest level. And at that time, a team that, you know perennial national champions um and i don't know if there's a much better example of a guy who's been able to get every ounce of effort uh and talent out of out of his players whether it be in college or the nfl i mean probably phil jackson is is the the next forefather after after him i mean i mean i remember when i so what got me into college was doing shot put and oh no way I, i don't know i don't know if there's a visual here people can see me but i was a buck 50 when i was in high school so i would go up against the linemen and the linebackers who just kind of, all right, I'll just do track on the off season when I'm not doing football. And so yeah. my coach knew that the greatest motivation for me was to basically to make me very competitive and piss me off. And he would regularly, mm. he didn't tell me until after I graduated high school. He's like, I would always tell you, um, listen, the other coach was commenting like, why is your shot putter so small? They're so, they're so gangly. <laughs> and like, look how small his legs are. Like, there's no way he can compete with my shot putters. So he would, right. he would say this to me like minutes before I went into the circle, throwing this 12 to 16 pound metal ball. And right. that, that strategy always worked for me. Now, would it have worked for Anad Ragunath, who was the other shot putter? Definitely not. Like he needed a hug. He needed a pat on the back. It's, and yeah. it's not that either one of us is better or worse. It's, what is the motivational system that operates? Mm. What's your operating system? And you need to know it as an individual. And as a coach, you need to access that operating system of those individuals. And this this goes for it's not. To, I mean, sports is just a metaphor for life. It goes sure. for when you're coaching. It goes for when you're leading. It goes for when you're a parent. It goes for when you're a teacher. And it goes for just being a good citizen. Is when you see people, you know, running a miss in a grocery store, mistreating a cashier to figure out like, what do you do in that situation? Do you sit back and be a bystander or do you be an upstander and go do something? And if you're going to do something and protect the cashier, how do you do it so that you don't end up with a warfare, you know, a physical altercation in the middle of a supermarket? You know, so all, all of these strategies um, starts with being very situationally aware and very attentive to, all right, what is my quick, my quick psychological read of what's going to motivate this individual. Hmm. Maybe that's a good segue too. So, so one of the things that I loved about your book, um, and, and maybe we could even start by having you define, uh, what, what, what would you define principled insubordination as? Well, to some degree, it is the willingness to see and respond to dysfunctional ideas, processes, and norms in, in a group, in your life, or in society. Yeah. And you're trying to make a change despite lacking power and status to do so. So this is really this is really about when you lack power and status. You're not the CEO. You're you know you're not you know you're not the uh, you're not the coach of the sport of the athletic team. You're a kid, and your family is kind of acting you know really strange on Thanksgiving with all their kind of political nightmare conversations. And then in these scenarios, what is the best way to influence, persuade, and get the best possible outcome? And so the, yeah. the principled part is. This is the the act of dissent or defiance comes from a place from an ethical framework that you're trying to do good, do good for yourself. If you do good for yourself, it doesn't detract from other people's well-being or to do good for society. 
So, you know, one of the things that kind of kept coming to mind as I was reading this book, so I, I, I love history. Um, most people would be probably surprised to hear that I was a history major and ended up working in tech, but um, I, I've, I'm fascinated by some of these American history, uh, you know, historical figures. So I, I just got done reading Trudeau's book on Washington. One of my favorite book is, is his one on Grant. And one of the things that kept coming to mind as I was reading your kind of um, – it almost kind of reads like a guide. It's like, look, if you're passionate and you want to change the world, like there's a way to do it, right? Um, at least that's kind of how I read it. And I kept reflecting back on some of these historical figures who were in incredibly adverse situations and the way in which they navigated getting to their end destination. Um, one of the things I loved about Washington is he was a master of understanding how to like read people um, create change, but like all the while, like keep himself out of the fray. Um, and like, ultimately it took a long time navigate to his end goal, but know when to push, when to pull, um, and very strategic in how he got to his end destination versus someone who might've been in a similar situation and just, you know, the pressure cooker just finally just and the lid blew off and they got angry. Like, he had a mastery of his emotions and it was just so strategic. And I was like, Oh my God, like if this book had been around, you know, in his time, like, you know, he probably either would have been the case study or like he would have been reading this thing religiously. I, I um, appreciate, I appreciate the compliment. I mean, this is the, the, the way that I view this is a lot of activists right now are getting it wrong and they're driven by, I want immediate feedback and I want immediate responsiveness versus I'm going to play the long game. And I mean, this is a very simple version. But when I when I watch racial reckoning, when I watch climate mm. change, when I watch people that are actually thinking about, okay, should should we you know should we change like the you know the election process? Um, and and when I watch when I watch about LGBTQIA plus rights, yeah. and I listen to how people and I observe how people are doing it now, and I'm like, wow. There's so many ways where you're, you're, you're creating unnecessary detractors and unnecessary friction because you're going for speed and shaming and public shaming and lynching. And those strategies, if, if, if you go, you know, Ken, I mean, you're, you're, you majored in history. I did not. I just read books. I mean, if you, if you go to Teddy Roosevelt, if you go to um, the gay liberation movement in the 1970s, if you go to, um, you know, Napoleon and, and how he was able to kind of bring France to, you know, to, uh, to primacy in the world, go to Genghis Khan, um, go to Malcolm X, go to Martin Luther King Jr. None of these people accomplished things without really deep skin in the game and a lot of cuts and bruises and a lot mm -hmm. of difficulty over the course of months and years in some cases. Mm. And really the shortest social revolution that exists is gay marriage. And that was a, a 10 year process. And, wow. and the thing is, I think about it. If, if you went back to the beginning of the decision of should we push for gay marriage, the legalization of gay marriage? And I know some of your listeners will have different views on this, but it's really just an analog. Yeah. As an example. Yeah. Yeah. Is if let's imagine that it started today, 2022, you mm. know exactly what would happen and it would go awry. It would go on social media. People would be po oh. posting that like, you know, they would be posting a bunch of pictures of um, heterosexual couples that are, prob that are problematic. They'd show pictures of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and say, listen, this is the heterosexual world. We're better than you. Um, and they would picture, they have pictures of, of, of uh, restaurants that we're not going to go to because 
they were upset because, you know, we were holding hands and, and how are we ever going to get married when a restaurant will let us have us there? And they would say, boycott this restaurant, boycott this person. Like, don't go to this establishment, like camp in front of this Senator's house and this Congressman's house. And all of that is great for your tribe. But if you're trying Mm. to win the affection and you're trying to actually curry additional votes to make sure that gay marriage was to pass, I don't know if it would in 2022. And, and one of the ways that it worked, if you go back 10 years ago, is nobody in the beginning talked about policy. All people hmm. did was very playfully, in many cases, in online forums and in public places, is hold. I remember there's this there's this great there's this great photographs where they've got um, gay gay men and women holding ho- holding protest signs that say, "We just want to get divorced, just like you." And and just that playful is something that that sarcasm and humor and that like the really biting satire in there, it's something that you don't see. But what it did was mm. people that were against gay marriage and against and really homophobic at the time were like, you know what? That's a good point. Like, you know, we're not doing so well on the heterosexual side as well. And you don't see that level of strategic detail in terms of how do I win the hearts and minds of emotions? And it's going to be slow because they have to go against their friends and family of these deep, deep, almost intractable beliefs. And you have to, you have to be able to get that perspective of it takes a lot to, to go against the people that have been on your side and say, you know what, I'm kind of going to go on to the other side. There's a lot of social persecution that happens there. And if we don't have that compassion, of how difficult it is to switch sides. Um, we're gonna have a hard time winning other people to be, you know, additional allies to the cause. You know, it, it's always interesting. Like when when I have these conversations, they start to intersect. Um, and and I, you know, I, I don't know when in what order these are gonna come out. So listeners might be like, we haven't heard that episode yet. Um, but I just got done interviewing uh, a gentleman by the name of Justin Wren, and he found founded the Fight for the Forgotten Charity, which is really cool. He's like a former UFC fighter, but he does a ton of work over in Africa. Um, and one of the things that they're doing is they're trying to help, um, basically like an endangered people in Uganda, the the pygmies, um, they're trying to help like build some level of infrastructure, get them access to clean water, education, all these things. And so on the other side of that, um, you know, there are those who are in power and literal slave masters. And so one of the things that, you know, and this is someone who has been on the ground, I think it's 10 plus years, made a tremendous amount of change and lasting impact is he said, if we went and basically tried to solve their problems in isolation and didn't take into consideration the other side, and we continue to dehumanize the people who are committing these atrocities, he's like, nothing would ever get done. Or it would get done and it would fall apart as soon as we left. He's like, the way that we've been able to be impactful is that we have gone in um, and we've helped get buy-in from the other side, those, those persecuting as to how this is gonna improve them as well. Um, you know, and I don't want to give away the whole episode, but I was just like, oh, wow, like that's such like a profound realization. And it just completely in line with what you said. It's like, it doesn't benefit you just to be loud um, and to take jabs at the other side. It's like, if you're really invested in making change, you know, what I'm hearing is like, you need to find a way strategically to get through to the other side. Um, because that that role of converting over to support you is also difficult, uh, right or wrong. 
Yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought that example. Is and and you can imagine if you didn't dehumanize the other side, your group members would say, "Are you really one of us, or are you kind of like a, you know, mm. are are you are you intel? Are you a spy that's that's really for the other side?" And you get that right. that skepticism and that you know a little bit of paranoia that happens there. Um, if you were to win. Whatever your social cause is. So let's say you win climate change and all of a sudden, you know, now it's all going to be electrical powered, everything, especially cars. Well, what I don't hear in the conversation is all of these really well-meaning families that aren't on social media, just trying to make ends meet that are in, you know, auto manufacturing companies. um, What's your thought about them? Because they're still going to be part of the society. So now that they don't have jobs, are are you willing to actually spend some of your capital to help them retool? And if they, and maybe they don't want to retool, maybe they're too old to retool that happens there. Right. So be, yeah. other than giving them buyouts, I mean, how do you, because that doesn't help either because this is the source of meaning. They take great pride in creating these, you know, in American cars that they've been doing for 10, 20, you know, 30, 40 years that happens there. And when you think yeah. about, you know, trying to end coal mines because of, you know, the, the element that that has in the environment. Well, I don't hear much compassion for, well, what do we do with these entire towns that revolve around the coal line? And so it's, right. it's more of like, let's not worry about them. Let's not let them drag down um, future generations of what's going to happen to earth. And I would say, yes, but Tough you can luck, also yeah. include them in your welfare about humanity and know that this is all they've ever known. Like you can't blame them and they've worked their butt off. And they, and they, you know, and they've developed cancer and illnesses and injuries as a result of working in these coal mines. And because of that, you know, the trains are running because the trains are running. We got to have cars and motorcycles and planes and, you know, they're part of the evolution of humanity. And so I think they're, you know, if of the many, many strategies that are out there, one is go get the perspective of your potential adversaries, try to understand mm. them and realize is that. They're still going to be alive and there if you win. So let's work with them now. And this isn't just about votes. It's It starts with, I'm going to care for you under this tent and figure out what your life would be like if there were no coal mines, if Detroit wasn't the center capital of creating gas-guzzling cars. And these are not the conversations that I'm hearing about when I hear about we want to improve climate change. And I'm just – and irrespective of whether I, this is a cause that I'm for – it's yeah. that this is just basically a model to approach social change. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> you know, one, one of the most frustrating things to me is always like the lack of, of thought beyond the surface level issue. Um, I mean, look, the, the, the true it is just as true in like intercompany politics, right? Like I have seen people who are um, great employees basically run themselves out of the company because they could not figure out how to kind of play the long game and be strategic in how they kind of like further their own agenda, right? Whether it be personal raise, a project, direction that the company's going, um, you know, it, it's like, it's not enough to just be loud and signal that you're upset about something. Like, again, I don't know how I ended up talking so much about history on this episode, but like, uh, Abraham Lincoln, right? Like, you know, there's incredible examples of his understanding that like, look, I can't disrupt everything at once. Um, this is a very long game and it's going to be a meandering path and I'm going to have to give a lot on the way to this end destination. Um, but in doing so, ultimately, like we can get close to our desired outcome 
but you're going to be you're going to you're going to have to be willing to be thoughtful and sacrifice along the way because there's someone on the other side who has a differing point of view that we eventually need to win over. Um, can I, so I don't know. I'm, I'm just fascinated by no, this conversation. Can I, can, I, can I add an element to the Abraham Lincoln story? Oh, man. That, please, please, please. gets lost. All right. Yeah. So this is and um, this this gets lost in the mix. Abraham Lincoln is known. So I'm using I'm using language from the from the 1800s here. Um, okay. He was known as have being incredibly great at doing darky jokes. And oh, Abraham wow. Lincoln would often tell what is now from our perspective, which we really shouldn't be doing. From our moral yeah. lens, he had really good racist jokes, really good racist stories. And when he <laughs> wanted to get the civil rights movement and kind of abolish slavery, you can bet your butt that when he met with people in the South, he would use those jokes and use those stories to let them know, listen, I understand you. I'm one of you. And still, I know that, listen, we, as you were saying, we as a union are going to be better mm. if we abolish slavery because we can have more people that pay more taxes and more people that produce more goods that happen there. But don't don't be mistaken. This guy was very strategic and he knew that if he came in there as morally superior and saying, like, listen, right. don't say that around me. Like, hey, make sure you don't tweet that. Like, that's inappropriate. I don't like that you supported this versus that. No, no, no. He mm. sat with them, drank with them, broke bread with them, and he played in their conversations and was just as inappropriate as the deepest, deepest, like, you know, a malevolent Southerner who hated black people at the time. And here's the thing in 2022, if, if we, if, if this was happening right now, the civil rights, you know, civil rights and kind of slavery was still happening. We're talking about yeah. abolishing slavery. Could an Abraham Lincoln survive with that strategy? And I would say probably not. And that's problematic because that's what led to the abolishment of slavery. Yeah, you know, it just it just makes me feel like um comp compromise is messy. Um and it's like to your point, you know, if if you are going to stand on a platform of just 100% virtue and you're unwilling to to waver from that stance at any point, like you're going to have a really difficult time connecting with people. Um and I almost feel like the recurring theme of this conversation is like there's someone on the other side that we need to account for. <laughs> you know, um, and in some way you need to like be able to bridge that divide. Um, and in some way it's like you, you have to be able to like establish a relationship with those people. And so, you know, so, sometimes I'm trying to think of what the word is. Maybe it's calculating, you know, sometimes I'm like, man, am I just being kind of calculating and a little cold, uh, and almost like too strategic and trying to like further my own objective. But I'm like, no, I mean, that's what it takes. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. if you have something that you're trying to move forward, it's like it requires a level of, you know, strategy, I guess, is the word that I keep coming back to. So the the term that we that we've been studying for years and kind of uh, was the was basically the, the thesis of my last book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, was mm. there's a benefit for a little bit of narcissism, a little bit of selfishness, mm. a little bit of psychopathy. Um, and this makes people very uncomfortable. It's oh manipulation. That's the yeah, word I was looking and, for. And manipul yeah. <laughs> manipulation. Listen, we're we're all manipulating people. Every time that you give a heart to someone on social media and saying that you like that thing, and it's someone that is socially attractive or popular, um, right. you are doing a form of manipulation. You're engaging in kindness as a as a, as a strategy to curry favor, to win favor, or maybe mm. you're tagging them in you know inside post you have because you want to kind of be connected with them, and you know that their power and status will rub off on you. So. 
Let's yeah. not pretend that we're not all playing likability games here and power structure games. The question right. is, are we doing it under an ethical framework for a the, – do the means justify the ends? And in some cases, we are constraining the flexible repertoire that someone can have to create positive, healthy gains for individuals, families, and societies – because as you're saying, we want everyone to be virtuous 100% of the time. And that's not humanity. That's not, that's yeah. not how humans operate in social groups. Yeah, it's not possible. Well, and maybe, maybe we could do this too, because I feel like we've started. C could we talk about some of the other kind of like foundational principles um, that you would say kind of define, you know, uh, principled insubordination? Or, or I also love this term, like virtuous rebels. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, and and I really you know let me give a more mundane example because we've been talking about okay. politics and well and sports sure. has been great is let, let's just say that you wanted to um you you found your romantic partner and you wanted to settle down you decided like you're you're a fan of marriage but you kind of like your space and you feel like you, to keep the passion alive you want to live in different places and not live together mm -hmm. um, this is in 2022 you know we can do we can, we can have any possible way of forming a relationship. So there's these social norms that you live with your long-term monogamous romantic partner, but who says right. so? And, and why can't we be flexible? And why can't we have a, a deep, honest conversation about maybe that's not the best strategy, especially if, if both of you have kids and you were kind of mixing families, maybe the, maybe the best mix is not living at the Brady Bunch in one single household, but in two households. And I know you, I mean, two, I, two families immediately come to mind that I know. It's great. Um, it's good. One of with one of, one of which with kids, one of which without, they live in different cities and they've been together. I don't know how many years at this point, eight. Um, but no, yeah, can, please continue. I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, like, no, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know them. So to <laughs> me, this fits with um, an archetype of reading history and sociology and psychology, which I call the niche carver. And this is basically mm. of you are living a life that deviates from orthodox thinking because it is better for your personal fulfillment. It's better for you reaching your potential mm. and it does not detract from other people's well-being. And so and you think of like people in van life, this kind of became very big during the pandemic of people of like, listen, why should I have one stable location? Because I love to travel. I love meeting new people and I love new food. And a lot of people look down at this as like, listen, this is what kids do. Like when they're doing their cross country trip, when they're in college, you don't do it as an right. adult. Well, what makes an adult? Right. So you can just right. start asking these questions, this curiosity and this intellectual humility. And why is there only way one way of being an adult? Like, do you stop using profanity? Do you stop listening to heavy metal music? You know, do you know, do you stop wrestling with your friends when you see them? And I mean, I, I have this I've always I've, this is, you know, one of the origins of being interested in this line of work is these very constrained ideas of what's an adult? What's a romantic relationship? Like, what's your relationship have to be with your family? Can you make your own family with no blood whatsoever? Because you get along with them better and there's actually more trust and there's actually mm. more security that happens there. Um, and then in terms of your own psychological self-care, how weird can you get? No, I mean, for, for some, you know, to go back to um, Phil Jackson um, running, yeah. running the Bulls, you know, one of the coolest episodes of The Last Dance, the a really amazing uh, documentary was the Dennis so good. the Dennis Rodman episode where yeah where Phil Jackson was asked when Dennis Rodman disappeared without any notion any mention and disappeared for Vegas for right no it was weeks but no one knew when he was going to come back the media attacked Phil Jackson and said hey um what are you doing as a coach and he said something like this which is listen 
Dennis Rodman, for whatever reason, he needs to go to Vegas, drink excessively, be around lots of women, and then he's going to come back when he's ready, and he's going to be the amazing player that we have. To do that, to give that level of psychological space, to be so astutely observant of what this guy needed. I mean, that that's that is such a masterful documentary that every organizational leader, every person in politics should be watching that because to what degree do you get close to that individual difference mentality? Because if he if he made Dennis Rodman come back, he'd be disgruntled. Um, he'd be aggressive and he probably would actually be giving um, only a small fraction of his performance when he was on the court. Yeah. That's such an incredible example and such a good documentary. If, if people haven't watched it, um, you, you said something else in there too. And this is something I definitely wanted to ask you about because it really kind of struck a chord with me. Curiosity, uh, kept popping up in this book. And I know it's one of the core tenants of your, your wellness lab at George Mason. Um, can, can you talk about, and I know now we're kind of like jumping around a little bit, but can you talk about why curiosity is and and if it is a, a critical component of just like personal well-being yeah i mean um i forgot her name uh sophie von strum um wrote an article okay. she talks about the three pillars of achievement and i know that a lot of your listeners of your podcast are interested in achievement and yeah just a little bit yeah so the three the three rungs are cognitive intelligence which people actually really kind of poo-poo on at this at the modern world you've sure. got perseverance which has been remarketed as grit and then you have this hungry mind, which is curiosity. Now, what's really interesting about those three is that we know that the more curious kids are in a prepubescent, seven, eight, nine, you follow them 17 years later, the more intelligent they become later. But there's no evidence the other way around. So, and we know this. Like, think about when you were in grade school and think about yeah. the most intelligent kids. They weren't necessarily curious, they were very good at solving problems. They're very good at knowing facts and winning trivia contests and Jeopardy, right. but they weren't necessarily curious about the world and other people. And there's no mm. evidence for that. Now, what, now here's where it gets really interesting. Yeah. So in terms of perseverance, uh, a bunch of researchers asked, hey, if you were to reflect on the happiest days that you have or the, or the most curious moment you had over the past week, and then go do a go on the treadmill or do these really difficult kind of Sudoku puzzles. What they found was, was that if you reflect on your most curious, intriguing moments, you would see about a 20% bump in your intellectual stamina and your physical <laughs> stamina, even when you're working out. But for reflecting on when you're happy does not lead to more stamina. And the reason is simple. If you were to think about your happiest moment, right? Just imagine sitting on your surfboard, Venice Beach, you're laying on your back, the sun is shining on you, you caught an awesome wave, and you're just completely blissful. That doesn't motivate you to do anything new. It basically, you have this nostalgic moment, and you want to sit back and drink a margarita and be like, yeah, that was a freaking awesome day. Like, I should have one of those days. Yeah. But when you reflect on when you were intrigued and you were hanging out with the guy that was driving, riding a unicycle around you while you were like, hey, God. Like, dude, when did you start getting into the unicycle? Like, of all the things to do, like, how does that start? And you had that right. conversation. That motivates you to say, damn, the world is interesting. I want to find out more interesting things. I want to do more interesting things. And it, you have this approach motivation to take a step forward and do more that happens there. So being curious makes you persevere more towards your goals. But there's no evidence that being the really gritty, hardworking character 
makes you more curious. And so all of you put all this together that the real catalyst of all these other psychological strengths starts from this place of, I want to explore. I'm intrigued by the world. I don't want to just be interesting. I want to take an interest in other people. You attract other people. You attract new knowledge. You become wiser. You become stronger. So this is, you know, I've been studying this for 25 years and still I think we underappreciate curiosity because we kind of think about it of, you know, in the educational spectrum, as opposed to this is how you get social capital. This is how you influence people. Mm. This is how you can be receptive to someone that thinks differently than you. And damn, is that cool? Because at least 50 percent of the country has a very different belief system than you. Wow. Well, you know, and it's funny, like on this topic of, of curiosity, like I've even wrestled with changing the name of this podcast because understandably, like, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a play on words of people like, oh, well, I'm not a professional athlete. What am I doing on the show? I'm like, well, that's not exactly what this is about. But, um, but no, but this, this theme of curiosity, like it, it's really got me thinking. And, and one of the questions I had for you is, so I, I, you know, look, I have a podcast, so I fall in this camp. Like I'm naturally just very curious. Like if I were to design my perfect day, it would probably be just constantly just reading and just like ingesting new information. Um, and I see that with, uh, you know, my kids, actually the, the two that are kind of old enough to show, you know, where their interests lie, like they're both naturally very curious. And so the question I have for you is, cur- is curiosity something that is innate or, you know, someone who's maybe listening to this podcast and they're like, well, you know, I've always just kind of been focused on just like doing what I have to do every day, but boy, I'm interested in living a more fulfilling life. Is curiosity something that can kind of be like taught or, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, strengthened? Yeah. No, no. It's a good. And I like I like the the analog you gave. Right. People that are just like laser focused. Like, listen, life's hard. Trying to make ends meet. Um, love seeing mm. my kids. Um, love having a romantic partner. Every once in a while, I get time with my friends. Um, not enough time that happens there. I don't have time. I don't have time to read books. I don't. I don't have times for podcasts. Yeah. I don't. Have, I don't have time for TED talks, even though they're you know twelve minutes. Um, right. So, no judgment on that whatsoever. So, and, and I, what I, what I want to offer here is this is most things have trade offs where okay. if you invest in your friendships, that is time away from your kids, it's time away from working out, and it's time away from being at the beach, unless you know you mix all the things together. Unless you can pull off all three. That's actually... Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, the, I mean, that's the dream activity. <laughs> but yeah, try to organize schedules with people with kids. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. the interesting thing about curiosity is when you... Uh, like let, just, just this podcast interview with you right now, we never met before. I'm totally intrigued mm. by your bringing historical examples. So I am totally using a lot of cortical energy to try to engage with you and listen to you because I want to like build off you. Right, right, right. What we find is after moments of curiosity, even though you use a lot of neurological activity, a lot of physical energy, you feel like at the end of this conversation, I'm going to have more mm. energy to work out than when I started. And Absolutely. it doesn't make sense because if you just ran a 10K and then went to your keyboard and started working on your journal, you'd be like, you know what? I think I'm going to take like a nap. I need to rest for a little bit. I need to. But curiosity like builds energy. So what I'm saying is that this yeah. is like a free pass to fortitude and psychological nutriments. And you're even though you're mm. using energy, it creates more energy. So this is something that's almost – I almost think of it as – you could think of it as a psychological strength curiosity. You could think of it as that 
as we have moments when we're more curious than other moments. But you can also think of it as an approach to living is that instead of going for the happy life of trying to have fun, instead of going for the meaningful life where I'm trying to do something that matters, you're saying, I want a life that's intriguing and interesting. And it might feel Mm -hmm. good. It might feel weird. It might feel negative, but damn, I'm going to have some good stories. I'm going to have a really good autobiography. And so it's an approach that you can start taking You just as soon as you listen to this podcast, when you walk away in the next episode of your life, if there's a person there, you get to ask any question you want on the planet. And yet, invariably, we ask, how are you doing? What was the weather? Mm. Yo, what are you doing this weekend? What did you do last weekend? Um, hey, any trips planned for the summer? And we just stick with this regular. Yeah, lame I'm embarrassed repertoire. as you say all oh, this. Oh, no, I do the same thing. No, Because so, <laughs> I'm like, I think I just had that exact conversation last night. Oh, I do the same thing all the time. And, and you know, it's, it's with intention you can add, inject curiosity in. So just this morning, I, I drive my, my 15-year-old twin high school kid to school. And I, and I'll just, and I just ask them, I'm like, Hey, listen, um, is there, is there any chance that you want to, you want to develop your rock climbing skills over the summer? Because I was just watching this video, dot, dot, dot. So I watched the video and I asked them if they want to be rock climbers, no segue whatsoever. And we, and they were like, I don't know. Is one of my kids asked, is that going to help me be a better volleyball player? The other one said, I don't know if I'm strong enough to climb up the rock. So we had all of a sudden, just by skipping the rungs of intimacy and asking this, not even that unusual of a question, I got to go with these different portals with each one of my kids in the car, as opposed to, do you have a test today? Like, hey, which friends are you going to see today? And, And so you just, you can ask anything. And we are so, including myself, we are all so goddamn boring in our right. initial conversations, <laughs> and me included. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with my wife. I'm like, you know what? I don't know where this podcast is going to go long term. Uh, and for those listening, I, I think they know, like, I have, like, a full-time job, and I've got three kids, and I've even got a big side project I'm working on. But, like, I, I love it so much. And the thing that I told her was like, when I walk away from a great conversation, I was like, I am, you know, I think I use the term, I was like, I am fired up. Like, I have so much energy, I'm excited, like everything that, you know, happens in my day, like, you know, it's a little bit easier to deal with. The counter is also true. Like, I I was thinking about this, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like an an interesting um, contradiction. Like, I love having a conversation like this. The older I get, I hate and avoid small talk. Like you want to watch my eyes glaze over. It's like that conversation that you just laid out. I'm like, man, get me that situation. (laughs) Let's talk about this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah, But you know, so I'm like, okay, there's, I enjoy engaging with people. I'm not a complete curmudgeon hermit. Um, But uh, yeah, there's, there's something about like, yeah. So it it makes complete sense to me why curiosity is so important. Um, You know, you just get excited. It's like, oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Oh, I didn't know that was possible. Or wait, they're doing what? Elon Musk started what company? You know, it's just like, it's fun. And it gets you excited about like the prospects of what's possible. Can I give um, the the listeners like a real simple tip? Cause it, you know, Please. I mean, cause I've been doing this for so long and, and I want to, I want to make a, an, an easy, an easy, you know, runway to get into these curious conversations. Yeah. yeah People yeah. love talking about their past and no one asks them about their past. So as we are adults, mm. we meet people in their late twenties, thirties, forties and up. 
And we just kind of don't ask about what people were like in college or, so, or in high school. So just experiment with this of like when, you know, when you go to your pool and when you meet people and just be like, hey, by the way, I'm just curious. Um, do you think that we would have gotten along if we met in high school? And just oh, and just question. and just watch where the conversation goes, or like, hey, what were you like in college? So real simple questions about your and what the, it does a couple things. One is it opens up a number of avenues of where the conversation is going to go. You're not in control, and there's a lot of interesting things that could pop out. The second mm. the second part is you're also showing is that you care about their well being because you've taken an interest in their past and who they are and their superhero origin story that kind of, you know, what made them them. And, right. and if they bring up difficult stuff, which often happens, um, all of us have our own adversities and traumas is try to sit with it. Like try not to fix it or change it and just kind of be, and just ask questions as opposed to just saying, just saying that must've been hard for you of people are often remiss that no one asked them about their parent that died young. If no one asked them that, you know, that they were physically abused by their parents as a kid or they were bullied right. or that they, you know, they failed out of high school or they were homeless at one point or they had a drug addiction at one point. So when someone brings this up, you can with compassionate curiosity, you can start asking questions and you don't have to stop and be like, damn, that sounds like you had a hard life. That's a conversation mm. ender. Right. And is instead is be like, God, like, like how, like, how'd you, how'd you get to here from there? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's such great advice. Well, and it's funny because on the one hand, and this almost ties back to like the softball example I gave at the beginning, you're kind of like, Oh boy, that's kind of, maybe I should tread lightly. This might be hard for them. Right. And it's kind of like brings a full circle. It's like, no, like the people who take the time to like dive in, have a tough conversation, whether it be constructive criticism or being willing to like kind of peel back these layers and talk about something real. It's like, those are the people that you actually start to like form a bond with. Yeah, no, no, no. Shared adversity. And you don't have, to go, you don't have to go through it together. But the idea mm. that you are sitting and taking the perspective of the person who experienced adversity or someone does it to you is a very powerful elixir for fast charging friendships. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and thinking back to like the people that I engage with, um, that I walk with being like, Oh, he, he's a great guy. They, they really are the ones who are fantastic at just asking questions and, and, and doing so in a way that is, seems like they have a genuine interest in learning more about you. Um, and it's, it's hard to do. And like, I, I understand why some people feel like a little hesitant to do it, but let I me mean, look, you know, we're talking a lot about my personal life today, but sales, I mean, the best sales people are the ones who talk the least right? They are the ones who have found a way to like create rapport really quickly. And it's not through talking about the weather. Um, and they're the ones who have figured out a way to listen and ask questions that, you know, um, get people on the other side to come to a realization that maybe they couldn't even see, you know, it, it's like, it truly is an art. Um, and in my mind, something that can be built, but there's definitely people who are like just naturally gifted um, but it seems like it's a skill set that can be acquired. Yeah. And if and in the workplace, as opposed to you touting your new idea of, hey, does anyone have any half-formed, half-baked thoughts of like kind of like how hmm. we can do things better? You open yeah. up with those questions and you've basically given people freedom of you don't have to have a finished process to get to me. And you don't have to wait until you've worked out all the kinks because you're basically saying this is a space where we are going to help 
tinker and build off of your initial idea. And those kind of environments, those psychologically flexible environments are going to innovate more. They do innovate more than ones where, you know what, don't challenge an idea unless you have a solution. That's one, that's one toxic problem. The other one is yeah. don't give an idea unless it's fully developed. That's a second, hmm. that's a second toxic, toxic problem. We're not even talking about toxic people here. And then when, right. and then when it comes to dating, if I was to write Neil, rewrite Neil, Neil Strauss, is he write the, the game? Is he the one? That oh, I don't know. I'll have to look. I'll, I'll definitely check. Yeah. Someone's, someone's screaming in their headphones right now. Be like, it's not Neil Strauss. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, you know, he wrote that game about being a pickup artist and, if I oh yeah, if, yeah. if I was oh if I was to rewrite that, it would kind of go Ken with what you're saying is this is how the greatest seducers are not talking about their own lives. They're finding like what's intriguing about the other person, and mm. and yet we have this anxious leaning of like I have to show that I am better than all the other suitors that are available, and and I wish oh God I wish. Like my 16 year old self had this book that I wrote. I mean, I, I, wrote, I wrote this book because I thought to myself, so I didn't have a father figure growing up, which we don't have to psychoanalyze mm. myself. Um, I was raised by a single mom is I wrote this book of, I wish I had this guidebook for how to create a more fulfilling utopian life for myself and other people, because I didn't have the adult role models that were there. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of my gift of this. This is, this is 25 years of, of studying well-being of like, here's, Here's the guide. And, and, and these, you know, these strategies of trying to entice other people to tell their stories and getting genuinely interested, that's a strategy that I didn't I didn't use when I was younger. I just try to go on cool adventures and make sure that everyone knew that I went on these cool adventures. And people might have been impressed, but they didn't necessarily want to hang out with me a second time. Right. You know, for, for me, the most like common example is um Often, look, I'm very much in this camp, unfortunately. I wish I wasn't. But when I introduce myself, I'm often so focused on making sure that I do something as simple as say my own name right that I don't catch theirs. Or, or I was so worried about my initial, you know, you're so, it's so easy to get caught up in like, well, am I putting my best foot forward in terms of how I'm presenting myself? Yeah. That you can just be completely oblivious to what's happening on the other side. And the end result is the other person's like, well, this guy doesn't know anything about me or isn't interested or is so caught up in himself. Um, so this is this is wonderful advice. Well, and I'll ask you too. So you mentioned, you know, growing up uh, in a household without a father figure and you've now focused on like wellness and well-being for the last 25 years. Like for you, what, what have been the most impactful changes that maybe you've made over the course of like all of your research that have hopefully led to like a fulfilling life? I mean, I think the most important thing is allowing for no allergic reaction to uncomfortable emotional experiences. And, oh, okay. and this is something that's challenging, particularly, particularly for, for boys and for men, is we're really trained of anger is this really socially acceptable response when underneath mm. it is often like anxiety and fear that I'm fear that I'm not living up to my standards, fear that I'm not, I'm going to be rejected, fear I'm not going to live up to other people's standards or sadness that, you know, that I've lost a friendship or a friendship, a friendship is sort of dissipated or you get injured and you can't play a sport anymore. So now your identity, your identity's changed because you're really tied oh, to, man. you know, the, the cheers and, or just be able to get on to get into the arena. And now like, what's, what's your new arena? And there's a sadness mm. there. So often, you know, we turn to substances and we turn to aggressiveness and we return to, you know, really obsessively in a bad way 
go into the weight room, not just to build our body, but to escape our own unwanted thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So I've gotten really comfortable of crying. I've gotten really comfortable about being, you know, wallowing in sadness and just letting myself kind of have this space of like, you know, like I'm just not in a good space right now. And, and also getting really good at, at telling people. So, you know, all those as opposed to just, just being a supportive friend is letting people in so they can support me because people want to, your, your friends right. want to be there. And listen, this is not a very typical masculine conversation, even still, because the cultural script is, we are the sentinels as boys and men. And mm. We are to protect our families. We're to protect our friends. And we're there to be, you know, in combat. If someone pulls a, uh, a broken, um, you know, serrated like a, a glass bottle of beer, um, we're the one that's supposed to stand in front of our friend and take and take the blow for them. And that's a beautiful thing. But let's yeah. not forget the softer side as well. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And it's funny. It kind of coincides with like this, this, uh, you know, if, if listeners are still listening, like this emotional journey that I've kind of been on the last five years, I think being a parent has kind of brought a lot of that out. Um, but you know, you, you hit the nail on the head and as someone else who's a male and I'm from the outside, I probably look like a very typical, like masculine caricature. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, you grow up thinking the right way to handle this stuff is just to like persevere. And I, I would be described as someone who was like gritty, you know, in a sick way, I'd almost be like, boy, I, I would love to get thrown into like that situation to see how I could like respond I'm and just like, like you. come out of it. <laughs> you know, but I've, I've, you know, now having a, a wife who loves me very much and, and, you know, we depend upon each other and having kids, I was like, Whoa, there's a lot of emotional stuff here that I have like completely not addressed and now that I have all these other little people that, you know, depend on me, it's like I, you start to see the need to like, I need to unpack some of this stuff and I need to learn to deal with it in a way that is healthier. So that in turn, my, my biggest fear was like, am I passing on my bad habits to them for lack of like not being willing to like do what's difficult yeah. to put in the work? Yeah. You know, that was like the big eye opener for me. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm still in the midst of it. But it's very cool to hear that, like, for you as someone who's like focused on understanding all the aspects of well-being, that like that was, you know, maybe maybe the most important thing. There's a lot in there that you're saying. One that I want to hit because I, yeah. I have a feeling that some of your listeners might be the same way. Um, I look like a very masculine man, and I've always been right, right. very muscular and and fit. And people make all these assumptions. It's just like you know, people assume that attractive women are not going to read Dostoevsky. People assume mm. that a physically, you know, whatever intimidating man is automatically like a meathead. And, right. Yeah. And, absolutely. And, and even when, even when this book came out, I remember I was um, I did this live event, and after it was over, um, it was one of the greatest compliments. Um, the woman in charge was like, you know what? Well, I, I thought you were like this alpha male who's trying to, you know, dominate everyone. And you're freaking softy and gushy inside. And you're and <laughs> so much love for humanity. And like, I, and it was a compliment, but at the same time, I'm like, damn, I'm like, I'm 48 years old and still with a 48 year old body, like still like people assume that I'm going to be, I don't know, just come in there like with guns blazing and just start like, <laughs> like, you know, attacking people and being sarcastic and obnoxious and kind of taking up all the space in the room. And, um, yeah, no, I don't, no, it's, it's cool. Like that, that the, uh, that the loving side is now kind of getting some attention, but it sucks when for anyone where, you know, your, your physical demeanor 
people interpret is that I can tell your personality by physically how you walk through the world. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, we, we can wrap this up here. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but it, it's funny. Um, in college, so I, I, went, I, went, I went to Princeton, I went to Ivy League school, but I come from like a small, relatively small town north of Seattle, really cl- almost closer to Canada than anything else, right? So like huge cultural departure from what I grew up in. Like the, the town next door, their team was the loggers, if that puts anything <laughs> in perspective for people. And I remember, you know, I had to stop, and I think I read some study in one of my psych classes about like the impact it has on an athlete's performance when they get reminded that they're an athlete before test. Um, and I, I found that I was constantly fighting this perception in my own head, probably, and probably some in theirs too, if we're being honest, but like of being like, oh, well, here's the jock in the room. Probably, he probably wouldn't be here without football, which, you know, granted, probably true. Um, but, you know, it, it's like I had to stop wearing like my football sweats and gear to take tests. Like I, I had to make a conscious decision. I was like, man, I need to like stop reminding myself that I'm like the football player here taking the test. And I'm just like a student like everyone else. Right. Uh, because it's like, man, you really, you can get caught up in that perception right or wrong of what you think people are or what people think of you. Um, and it can really impact the way that like you perform and the way that you carry yourself. I had, to, I mean, I really had to make that change because I was just like, I was like, Oh God, my self-talk during this, you know, precept where I'm supposed to be like sharing ideas about the reading from this week. I was just so hesitant. I love, I, like, I love yourself. Yeah. I love a self, your self-awareness to like little nudges to the environment. It's, it's, it's really good for, you know, just, just to kind of give these examples of like that slight nudge of I'm going to wear the glasses and I'm going to wear like the button down mm. shirt because in that I feel nerdy. And right now I want the nerdy version of myself to come out in this situation. And so if yeah. it, it, there's nothing, it's bizarre, but there's, but it's, it's functional. And we should think mm. about like psychological flexibility. What is the functional strategy, small effortless strategy if that gives you you know a five percent bump on a test we'll shoot test after test after test man that cumulative that cumulative benefit ends up being huge right right oh man uh todd this has been such an awesome awesome conversation um i really hope the listeners enjoy it and like i said i, I must have had like 30 questions for you i think we hit like two of them and then That's everything good. else was just great just genuine interest but um th- this is so wonderful and and i would love to have you back on at some point but for for those who want to learn more about your doing we, we already mentioned your book the art of insubordination how to descend and defy effectively i highly recommend it for people who want to learn more about you where where can i direct them um just go to my website toddcashin.com i got a free newsletter sign up and i you know i just like to share uh alternative views of conventional practices because there's a lot of messed up stuff happening in our society and i like to i, I am perfectly comfortable being provocative because i have tenure and speaking my piece. <laughs> awesome all right well hey thank you thank you so much and uh again we'll have to have you back on in the future if you're up for oh, it. oh yeah of course yeah this is great awesome and mommy you better go ask mommy daddy <laughs> hello hi <laughs> i'm trying this again <laughs> oh you didn't have to tell them that that's okay uh. Oh, they wouldn't have known. You're right. <laughs> no, no one. That's okay. Uh, first time. You know what? You know what our little one Kenny said the other day that killed me. What? I'm trying to remember what it was. It might have been like an episode of Paw Patrol or a dinosaur documentary. And I was like, buddy, I was like, you've this. This is not. Oh, 
he was like, he was like, let's watch that new one. They were trying to trick me, basically. Yeah. Like, I don't know, dad, dad, that one's new. That one's new. I'm like, no, it's not, buddy. <laughs> like, I, that's not new. That one came out like 2018. He's like, well, if you haven't seen it yet, it's new to you. <laughs> and I was like, you clever little <laughs> four year old. <laughs> I was like, all right, putting it on. You win. <laughs> I respect, I respect the hustle. Uh, anywho, uh, actually, maybe that's a good segue here. Constructive yeah. feedback. There you go. <laughs> um there was so many good conversation points in here and sincerely i i genuinely enjoyed his book i really recommend people read it um and i cannot wait to read the next one the upside of your dark side yeah you covered a lot of ground when you were just Mm -hmm. going over your takeaways (laughs) half of them i was like oh i forgot you guys talked about that yeah i know we did cover a lot of ground yeah um, and that's why it's, you know, this is always tough. This is always hard, but I think there's a couple things that stood out to me, um, that I'm going to try and remember and like take with me moving forward. And, and one of them was just like, we talked a lot about coaching, yeah, coaching kids, being coached, great coaches. Um, you know, there's a lot of different schools of thought to, to kind of sum everything up. I think everyone is just getting a lot softer mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not good. Um, so I loved his point about like, look, like there, there really is a case to be made for constructive feedback. Yeah. Right. It's like, and I think the point was something to the effect of it's like, look, there was a study, those who received, you know, maybe, maybe tough constructive feedback versus those who just received praise, those who received the feedback, like actually ended up performing better. And I think maybe more happier now I might yeah. be making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> I really should keep better notes. Well, for, as an example, when we were, your um, softball coaching career oh, yeah. your debut season mm-hmm. the girls had a mess they, they just had their bags everywhere and it was just a mess of all their belongings and you didn't yell at them but you very sternly told them to take some pride in their belongings <laughs> <laughs> and the parent section got on their feet and cheered you i did yeah <laughs> they were like thank this you. is a true story thank you, coach. this is a true story there was a slight <laughs> slight standing ovation <laughs> um but no exactly right and it's like Look, if you don't teach these kids how to do things the right way, like how are they going to know? Yeah, exactly. Number one. And if you just constantly coddle them, it's like, do you think you're preparing them to be able to like go out and like survive adversity in the real world? Exactly. Because it's coming. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're going to be able to avoid it. You know what? I also just saw a meme and this doesn't totally relate, but... You have my attention. It wasn't... Well, anyway, so it was gentlemen versus boys and the first i forget which one came first but Hmm. the gentleman was it was a cast of um spider-man which one uh the one with zendaya and oh the new cast yeah so they're getting out of an elevator and there's like five of them and there's two men and three girls or whatever the men like jump out in front of them in the elevator and they all just like walk out. And then it shows the cast of, and this is like, they're going to some talk show. Okay. Separate occasions. Okay. And then it shows the cast of um, the Marvel movies. Mm. So it's like Chris Hemsworth. Oh, the Avengers. And, yeah, the Avengers. It's like Thor, um, Iron Man, and one of the other guys. Yep. I think it was Dr. Chris Str- Evans. Oh, okay. No, it was, it was one of the other, whatever. And then it was Scarlett Johansson Mm. and the doors open to the elevator. And instead of like all walking out as they were, they all like step aside and let Scarlett Johansson go out. Ah. But like people don't teach your kids to act like that now. (sighs) I'd like like to see that meme. 
you know, I'll show it to you. I meant to send it to you. <laughs> but like when you're in an elevator with mixed company, you should let the women out first. Yeah. And people just don't, they're not teaching their kids this. It's true. So kids aren't doing it. Yeah. I would say there's and I'm a- always annoyed at how rude young people are now. Not that yeah. we're not young, but like we're not that young. And I'm like, well, that's because their parents didn't care enough to tell them and teach them. This is that we're such old people, by the way. Like I literally just had the epiphany. I was like, oh my God, we are the old people talking about these kids have terrible manners. Yeah. But like, but they do, but we're, I mean, we're in between those two casts, right? Oh yeah. So we're, and I would hope that we're closer to having better manners. I don't know. (laughs) But (laughs) I guess it is like with every generation people are, Less and less polite, but yeah. Well, I, uh, but I'm I th- also going off topic. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. But I think you're right. Like there, there's a lot of ways to do things, but I think that in general, you know, you need to have some sort of principles on what is the right way to do things. And like, look, you could be wrong, but if you have those principles, like you need to instill them in your kids. Yeah. Right. And there's some people who are like, oh, they're, they're going to fucking turn this off because they're going to be like, nope, don't subscribe to that. We <laughs> let our kid do free learning or whatever bullshit they do. And then we don't give yeah. them any boundaries or whatever. Yeah. Um, let me know how that works out for you. Number one is someone who has three kids. I can. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear how that works out. Yeah. Um, but also it's like kids need boundaries, I guess. Like you, they need a framework to operate within. Structure. Yeah. They need structure. Like. If you don't provide any structure to them, the world is just wide open. And I could see how in some ways that you could say like, oh, well, maybe like you're limiting their potential because you're making them operate within this box. It's like, yeah, but a house, you can't just build a house willy nilly. Yeah. It's like you need to teach them to have like a good foundation and like a framework to build off of and then let them go be creative. Yeah. I don't know. Give them the essentials. So we got off topic. I'm I'm off on my soapbox. (laughs) Sorry. But... No, so anyways, I thought it was it was a good to hear because I, as someone who I think was you know, grew up in kind of a little bit of that old school mentality, especially when it came to sports, you know, like I had the the hard ass coach, I had the guy who was like demanding and relentless, and for me, those were some of my favorite coaches, when that came from the right place, and yeah. so you know, I do think that's something that's being lost. To an extent, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm making more of it than it is, but I think there's a lot to be said for giving your kids, what am I trying to say? Like strict feedback. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I agree. We're going all over the place. Um, okay. Here's something else I liked and then I'll get off the kid thing. Curiosity and intelligence. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. You think it's interesting because you're very curious and you're like, yes, that makes so much sense. I think you're the right. More, the more curious, the more intelligent. <laughs> of course. But like, don't you see it in our kids? <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no. And I don't think it's wrong, but I'm saying you agree with it because you are curious. So you're like, yeah, I'm super smart. <laughs> okay. Do you feel differently? 
No, no, no. I'm agreeing. Oh, okay. You just want to take a shot at me. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> You're like, oh, I don't know why I agree. But I think that's right. <laughs> okay, we'll move on. But yeah, no, I agree. Because people that are curious are constantly learning. And that the more you, the more you learn, the more you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think you're, I think you're right there. Um, oh, this is a good one because this is how I'm feeling. Embrace emotionally uncomfortable experiences. <laughs> You've made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> on my own podcast. Um, but no, he, here's what I liked about this. And not the first time I've heard this, but like, it's very safe to stay within your comfort zone. Yeah. It's easy. You, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's non-threatening. Yeah. Like, so why would I venture outside of this warm little cozy? <laughs> but it's like, if you can learn to embrace being uncomfortable, like, it feels like that's where like the really interesting stuff happens. Right. Cause you, that's where you're actually learning and yeah. you're growing. You meet interesting people, you have a new experience. It changes your perspective. Right. You know what I mean? And so it's like, it's very difficult to do. And I, I don't know if this is necessarily how he meant it, but thinking back to that last piece about like having interesting conversations with people, mm -hmm. like that's kind of an, it's uncomfortable to like, yeah upon meeting someone to kind of like step out of like the box of like, you know, normal, polite, small talk. Right. And ask like a, know, a deeper question like and try and make said, a real connection. There's people that I'm thinking of that do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's really nice talking to them. I like, they're great conversationalists and I always have a great time talking to them because they do that. And I, and I know that I don't typically do that yeah. unless I'm like in the right mood, yeah. but that's something to work on doing it more but and, more and maybe that's the point though right it's like that's a little uncomfortable maybe either for you or them but those are the people that you remember right yeah right one very small example but i was just like oh that's you know it's a good little sound bite yeah embrace great. embrace uncomfortable experiences that was probably what stuck out most for me really the podcast interesting yeah. okay because i because i i agree i love having conversations with people like that mm. and i do I would like to try to implement that more in my small talk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> less uh, less weather I, talk. <laughs> when I brush up my small talk. I know it's so easy to do though. Yeah. Especially like when you don't really care about the conversation, but then you're like, if, if I would just ask questions, I could be, I could learn something about this person and maybe like grow right. our relationship and have like a deeper connection where I, I do want to yeah. know more. You and, know? You, and maybe you find like, oh, wait. I actually really I, like this person. Yeah, or but, like, and, whoa, we have a lot in common and we were just going to be like, all right, yeah. well, see it pick up next <laughs> next Monday. A lot of it probably comes out of just being uncomfortable, though. Exactly. Less so, like, I don't care about what this person has to say. More so, like, I don't want to, like, come off weird yeah. asking, like, a bunch of questions. Yeah, everyone's just wrapped up in their own shit. But I love when people ask me questions, so I don't know why I feel that way. That, okay, and now I can't remember to what extent we talked about, but that is, like, the point. Yeah. Like people. <laughs> you want to know about me? <laughs> yeah. People love to talk about themselves. Yeah. And I don't, I don't even mean that in like a egocentric <laughs> way. Yeah. You know, in part, there's some of that there. Oh, totally. But I think people love to feel like someone's taking an interest in them. Yeah. It's feel special. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, just ask about people. You know, something I always tell myself, I'm like, I already fucking know how I feel about everything. I know. You know? I'm like, yeah. why don't I ask them what they think? 
It's hard to do because look, I, look, I have a podcast. Uh, if we ran back the tape, I probably dominate like eighty percent of this conversation because I can't shut up. So I'm not acting like I'm on my high horse. Like I'm always fucking listening. Um, but I'm. That, I guess that's more something I try and remind myself. Not like, oh, I'm so great at this. It's like, look, you already know what you think. Why don't you ask this person and maybe like you can learn you something. You learn something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And build a connection with them. What have you? Yeah. Okay. If people are still listening. One last takeaway that it's I really okay liked. if you're not. I'm not upset. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, I loved this whole concept of like, how do you actually make progress? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like read read the book, um, you know, the, the Art of Insubordination. Like that's what it's all about. But it's like, it's not enough is what I took from this to just have an opinion or be angry and like want to shout it from the rooftops. Like, that's not how, like, progress actually happens, right? right? I mean, I don't know. Like, do you feel – I feel like that's a lot of what I see today. Yeah, that's the tactic that a lot of people are using. Yeah, just when, loud social media. Really, it's not – It's not. I mean, it's riling up the people who believe in what they're saying, but it's not making any connection between the two sides and making things better. I feel like people are just riling each other up. Yeah. It's just a lot of people getting riled up. Like, I love the way you said that. Really? Like, yeah, I do. But it, that's what it feels like. I remember when I said I blacked out. <laughs> Everyone's just getting, like, riled up. Uh, it's yeah. like, okay, is this actually moving anyone's cause forward? No, it's not. Doesn't feel like it. Um, so, but it's I, making I, each other angry. But I thought, I thought his kind of analysis of what's going on today, and I love the example of, like, the gay rights movement. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why was that successful? Right. It wasn't just enough that they were angry. They weren't just, like, canceling people. They were actually finding a way to, like, bring people over to their side. And yeah. not only just bring people over to their side, but make it, like, um, a bit easier to do so. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hard to, like, walk across the line if someone's just been shouting at you, calling you names, and, like, yeah. trying to destroy you. It's like, like why totally. am I, like, come over and support you. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the harder thing to do though. Yeah. To try to like be nice with your, I don't know, enemy, but like kind of enemy. Yeah. It's like the high road for sure. And the high road is usually harder. Yeah. But it's also, it's like, look, if you want to make progress. Right. It's like, you got to find a way to do it. Yeah. And it's like, everyone would love to just be on their soapbox saying my my way is the only way and like <laughs> hopefully people are going to hear how great my perspective on this is and come over mm-hmm. it's like not how it works no i know it's You're not right. how compromise works um you should you should run for president babe me yeah Ooh. bridge a gap <laughs> bridge a gap yeah i don't know if, i don't know what gaps i'd be bridging <laughs> um but anyways no i just thought it was great i love that and you know the big thing there it's like you need to be strategic it's not just enough to like have an opinion um, and then I love the fact like you need to be considerate of your quote unquote enemy. Mm-hmm. Again, that's kind of like what we talk about with Justin Wren. If you Remind remember me. that, the slavery over oh, in Uganda yes. right, right, right. wasn't just enough to go and like try and help the pygmies. It was like, look, you need to, what impact is this going to have on the other side? Right. Right. How do we find compassion for like, you know, the, uh, the, the what, what do you call them? The slave owners. Yeah. Right. The ones in power who were literally treating these people like they're subhuman. Right. But it's like you want to make progress to actually help those people. It's like, well, then you got to find a way to get these guys on board. 
Right. Being angry isn't going to solve it. It's not going to help anybody. No. It's tough. Usually it doesn't, yeah. Tough, tough, tough. I feel like we're all Very over the place. Tricky. I feel like we're all over the place. I know you guys were all over the place. Talk about a, you and I. Oh, no, the conversation was there was like so many different directions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good though. Yeah, it was great. All right, let's let's wrap this up. Yeah. Let's wrap this up. If people are still listening, thank you. Um, all right, folks. Hey, we've got a couple great episodes coming up. Oh. We've got some movie stars. Oh. We've got some CIA operatives. We've got some cool shit going down. But uh, stay tuned, folks. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. And as always, we will see you next week. See you next week.